Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Unauthorized Disclosure Podcast. I'm Kevin Gastola, joined by Rania Kalik. Hey, Rania. Hey, Kevin. Sorry, and I chose this exact moment to fix my microphone. So I apologize you're making, for that. You're making this face like something was about to fall off your desk. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's all good, though. All good. Hello, everyone. <laughs> and our guest for the show, not to step on her introduction, is a co-host of the podcast Generational Change and a former congressional candidate in the state of Florida. So thanks for joining this show to talk with us. Absolutely. Cool to be here. The first thing that we'll ask you about, since you are in the state of Florida, is uh, anything you want to share about the latest uh, there's been numerous updates about the way the state has responded or not responded to uh, the COVID, uh, I'll call it an economic crisis, so that we can broadly cover the pandemic as well as the financial toll that it's taken, the way it's exacerbated poverty within state, not just Florida, but we know that just there's been examples of how intense um, it has been, such as the difficulty obtaining unemployment benefits uh, and, ex and, and other examples like that. So if there's anything you want to share um, about how uh, things are going currently in Florida, as, as we see this push to reopen, it's more zealous among, let's say, states like Texas or Florida. But nonetheless, there are states like California and New York that are pushing just as quickly to reopen, even though we've seen the deaths, uh, well, not deaths, but we've seen new cases of COVID actually plateau around 60,000 cases a day, which is, I just want to note, higher than it was during the first wave of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, Florida is always an interesting subject um, when you're looking at how states handle various things. For the most part right now, people have to understand our governor is Ron DeSantis, and he is essentially a mini version of Donald Trump. He was uh, installed, basically, as our governor, came out of nowhere that was a backed-by-Trump candidate. So he has been managing our state um, very much like how Trump managed the pandemic um, nationally, which is it's sort of like this inconvenient afterthought that we just need to hurry up and get out of the way so business can get back to usual. Um, but the other interesting thing about Florida that I don't think people realize, and actually a friend who has a podcast, Bo of the Fifth Column, did an entire uh, episode about what what somebody from Florida could tell somebody in Texas in terms of Texas wanting to reopen. Um, Florida is an anomaly in that um, it is a very county run state. So in other words, when our governor said, okay, we're opening up the schools, um, our counties were like, yeah, no, no, we're not, we're not doing that. So even though Florida as a whole is definitely not any sort of like um, paradigm, we do have, I, I think, more so of a county control than a lot of other states might, might have. Um, and the other, the other interesting thing about Florida is while our numbers for COVID deaths are crazy high, people do need to understand that we also have a disproportionately high population of COVID vulnerable people that live in Florida, whether it's elderly or sick or, you know, whatever it is, like we, we do have a larger elderly population that has pre-existing. So I think it's not, you're not getting a fair assessment um, when you look at how a state did strategically in managing it in terms of what the deaths are. I think that that is not something that is easily seen. Um, 
So it's hard for me in my county to know really what's going on in the rest of the state. But Florida is very much kind of a free for all situation. Jeez. I'm sorry. I just like remember um, when COVID first hit, well, maybe not first hit, but the first couple mm. months when like the unemployment was very, very bad. Um, and I remember there was like this, these stories about DeSantis and, and then the, his predecessor, like intentionally, like uh, intentionally making it so the unemployment system was actually worse and would collapse so that they didn't yeah. have to give out unemployment. Like yeah. that was and really, yeah, go ahead. That, that to me is just very typical of a very red state where you, their general um, strategy is to completely um, definance, defund all of our services. And basically that's, that to me, I see across the board in red states. But like I said, DeSantis is like a mini Trump. And what's interesting is when you say his predecessor, we have a very, very low bar here in Florida. Because as bad as Ron DeSantis is, um, our previous governor, who is now our Senator Rick Scott, was infinitely worse. So <laughs> as bad as this is, we actually, you know, the, DeSantis's first year, uh, we were all kind of like, hey, he's not so bad, you know, like it's just, but we're, we have sort of like battered spouse syndrome in Florida. So we don't, we don't really know any better, but um, yeah, we're used to those kinds of shenanigans. We get it in our state legislature. Um, but we're just a very red state. So any of those sort of Republican strategies of taking away from public sector, privatizing things, profiting off of all of those kinds of policies are definitely what's going on here. And so uh, let me also ask you what your view is since you engage in all of these political issues. What do you think of this uh, push to reopen? What do you think should be the responsible way of getting things back? I mean, obviously vaccination seemed like one of the more critical elements, but then there are other things that people need to know about coming back to However, we feel we can go back to the way things were before COVID. I think there's a lot of things that people aren't paying much attention that have been impacts of the pandemic. I have some mixed thoughts a lot on this in terms of how this should have been handled from the beginning. Um, you know, I, there there have been places. I know that Sweden um, is one of those places where they never shut down and their numbers are not any worse than places that completely shut down. Um, I believed, and this is what I believed in the very beginning, that had we just installed a mask mandate and social distancing and responsible behavior, uh, that we wouldn't necessarily have needed to shut down. But that also presumes um, a society that has concern for the collective. Uh, in this country, we don't, we don't have concern for the collective. It's a very individualist, I got me mine, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps mentality. Um, so for all the same reasons, we don't have a universal basic income or universal healthcare, we're not gonna be able to deal well with a situation that involves caring for the collective. Uh, but so as far as states opening or staying shut, I have yet to see what I consider valid, reasonable scientific evidence that demonstrates that either strategy has been effective. 
And so I, I am very much a person who likes the idea of basing policy on reason and science. Um, I, it's crazy. And I feel like the majority of our COVID policy has been based on fear and profit. And I, I'm not, it's just, we have an entirely different, I have an entirely different viewpoint. So I don't know that keeping things shut down is the answer. I do believe that in the very beginning, had we shut down some things, some non-essential things and required masks. And, you know, I think there was a way to handle this much better than we have, but we do most things here based on profit and fear. So I, I mean, like, I, I don't agree with how this has been handled since the first place, but I would need to see some numbers regarding the different strategies and what has affected them. And, and, and we're not getting any sort of reasonable discussion regarding that. It's all very taboo. And it's all very culture war partisan, right? Like it so quickly was politicized into like, this is what Republicans think. This is what Democrats think. And there's like no nuance and no taking into consideration, like you said, the science. But on that note, like, I'd love to, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this as well as yours, Kevin, because, you know, we have this COVID stimulus bill that was just signed by Joe Biden. And if you look at the media coverage of it, I mean, they're acting like this guy's a communist or something. They're like, Joe Biden, crusader of the poor. Um, and then so it's like to be like, showering <laughs> them with cash. Like, right. I wish he was a crusader for the poor. And like, that's not to say that it's not an important piece of legislation, that it's not going to help people. Obviously, any help is good in this situation because people are really struggling. So we've got these $1,400 relief checks that should have been $2,000, but we're supposed to have, you know, settle for that. Uh, and it's means-based, I believe. We have $300 a week unemployment, which is down from the $600 earlier. Uh, and Democrats kind of negotiated, made that made that compromise, but I don't know who they were compromising with because no Republicans that, voted for this bill. That is uh, what we talked about last night. We were trying to figure out who are they negotiating with? It's yeah. like, they're just sitting there negotiating themselves down. I, yes. I, we, I don't know. I don't understand. Yeah, Republicans, the Republicans said they weren't going to support the bill and they ultimately didn't. So what were all these right-wing compromises for? Right. And, um, and, but the, but the crazy thing is, so you've got, if you've been reading the pieces that have been written about this, the, the, the conversation that elites in Washington are having and like bureaucrats are having is they're concerned, particularly the ones with a more right-wing economic ideology, are concerned that these um, benefits will be permanent, right? And they're like, uh-oh, because, you know, once you give Americans a little taste of what they deserve, they might like it and demand you keep it. So there's that concern. But then there's also the celebration that, oh, this is going to cut child poverty in half. I don't know where that statistic is coming from or if it's even true. But if it is true, what it demonstrates is that all this time we could have cut child poverty in half and right. didn't like it's, it's just yeah. I mean there's just the, the, this relief bill like the conversation happening around it's like state propaganda yeah in, in the worst way it's like we let you know all these people laugh at other countries and 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 their state-run media outfits but like how is the Washington Post or the New York Times any better when they're not looking at any of this with a critical eye or except with a critical eye of well this might be too much money for the poor yeah. you know well, you're, you're, you know, when you're talking about state run media versus corporate run media, you're splitting hairs. It's six of one, right. half a dozen the other. When your state is run by corporations, then corporate media is state media. It's, it's all just, it's semantics. So we are absolutely, all I can ever say is I wish, I wish that 
the, the government was as socialist as the media portrays them to be. Like, right. like I would love to have Joe Biden be that guy, but he's not. And I want to just also point out something that we noticed in the bill um, that you might not have realized, but not only is that $1,400 means tested, okay? There is also a provision in this legislation that says that it can go right to your debt. So it's not it is not being shielded from debt collectors. So the, a lot of the people that are going to get that $1,400 that have been living in arrears for like the past year, they're not even going to see that $1,400 because it's going to go right to their debts. Um, so it's means tested and then some. So I, you know, how they're celebrating this is just what you're saying. It is strictly corporate propaganda. Mm-hmm. It's actually like a good, the, the point you made about the debt collectors, um, I saw, I didn't see that until earlier today. I saw an article about that and I'm just like, what? Like, you're going to allow this to be garnished by de- Like, what's the point of this? Like, what is the point of this relief? And how is it? I mean, it's all just so like, we have this unbelievable unequal system and it's always been this way with almost no social safety net. And this this pandemic has demonstrated how um, vulnerable everyone is in America, except for upper middle class and like really rich people, how vulnerable everyone really is to just like, you know, hitting rock bottom so quickly because the state has almost no strategy in place to mitigate people from falling into poverty. And they don't care. No, I, I think that that's the, that's the point exactly. I mean, it's not that, yeah, they don't have anything in place to mitigate it because that's not what their concern is. It's like when you have a corporation, their sole purpose is to make profit and serve shareholders. That's it. That's their purpose. Their purpose isn't to be kind. Their purpose isn't to be generous. It's not to help the collective. Their purpose is profit. And we essentially have a government that is a corporatocracy. So every single decision that is made is based on maximizing profit for the ownership class, for the elite class. Every decision is made that way. So I have reached a point now where with every piece of legislation or everything, I don't even presume good intent. Like I, there, it's not even that there's a good intent. There is no good intent. The intent is simply maximize profit. And that is always going to be at odds with a human needs and a baseline of human existence. And that is where we cannot seem to get a foothold um, in this country. And I, I always say for me, I don't necessarily care how rich the rich are. I'm infinitely more concerned with how poor the poor are. So if, there, if our baseline was a living level of dignity, then I really wouldn't care that people had gold-plated fixtures on their private jets. Yeah, you know, so, so it's really, we, we focus so much on this sort of like the rich like to make it be like, we're vilifying the rich. And I'm thinking, no, I don't care. You guys could have as much money as you want to have. If you can do it without screwing all your people. But you I know? guess they can't, I don't think you can have, I don't, at the end of the day, like what it <laughs> seems to be is that you can't have five yachts. Um, no. You can't have five yachts and an equal system. Like you have five yachts because there's extreme poverty, right? Like I'm not saying you shouldn't have like, right, right. Like it's like those two things are so deeply connected. Like they're literally stealing from the majority of people. And that's why they're rich. Like these people have companies that they don't pay their workers living wages. And that's why they have 18 homes, you know? Right. And those Um, same people control the media. 
right. and they control the narrative so that you've got people that actually believe that if you were to give us a $15 minimum wage, that that would increase unemployment, right? Like they have so successfully, and it isn't just with that, it's with everything. We have been so propagandized with corporate talking points that people truly believe that mm -hmm. the budget and the debt and the deficit is all like a household and you got to balance the books and we can't have tighten your belt and, and we can't do, and that's just nonsense it's yeah. nonsense and so we we have an entire system of information that's predicated on economics that is not real mm -hmm. so when you when you have people sort of snow job that way it's very easy to convince them that we can't afford these things Right. And I, you know, I have family who are educators who have pointed out, uh, and they're in Indiana who point out you know, they're running the state like a business, but you know, this, any state's not there to make money. You know, no, like no state has to make money and, and none of them are producing anything. You know, they're not marketing anything to anyone. Um, that's not their role in our society. And so it, it, it is very backward and you get the kinds of policies that don't uh, make much sense at all. And then I think very shockingly, uh, I was actually a little blown away by it, even though I know how people get pushback when they do uh, challenge or try to raise expectations for action from Democrats. But uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure exactly the, the, the scope of it, but there certainly was a backlash against Reverend uh, William Barber for just basically laying down a marker and saying this doesn't even meet the promises that Democrats gave to us for what they would do with the COVID-19 relief bill. And I mean, if you understand how Congress works, you know, this was probably one of the only, if not the only opportunities to get anything meaningful through uh, the, the Congress. I mean, after this, what do we really think the Senate is going to pass? I don't think they're going to pass much of anything at all. I think this was, I think this was the, 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 the bite at the apple, so to speak. And after that, there's not much that we're going to see. I mean, same when you like reflect back on Barack Obama's administration, all you can probably name is the Affordable Care Act. Um, and there's not much else that you can name. So if they didn't attach it or stick it inside the Affordable Care Act, then it didn't get through during Barack Obama's administration. Yeah. I, I mean, right now we're living with a system that is designed to do nothing. It's just there. Like all we do is fight defense to keep it from getting worse, you know, and to, it, that's what it feels like. Like we're, it's set up so that we can't get anywhere, which is why I said for the past four years that people like Nancy Pelosi loved having someone like Donald Trump in office. They love that. Um, they can say, oh, no, it's not us. It's them. It's the Republicans, those evil Republicans. They won't let us. And now they're faced with a situation where they're, it's going to be seen that they're not, they have no clothes because they don't really have opposition, and yet they're arguing with themselves. Um, but, but that's what they're spinning right now. That's exactly what we're talking about. Like, who were they negotiating with, with this bill? Nobody. But then remember the first day they get in that they take the Senate, you had Chuck Schumer saying how he was going to share the power with Mitch McConnell, like, like as if the Republicans were so sharing with their power when they had the seat, you know? So, I mean, they, they don't want to make progress. I mean, that's ultimately what it is. And more and more people need to just realize that the Democrats have no more interest in progress than the Republicans do.
You know, sometimes I wonder if like, um, and this is, this is where I get conspiratorial, but I don't care. Sometimes I wonder if, you know, when it comes to these sort of blue dog Democrats, as they call them, the conservative Democrats, people like Joe Manchin and uh, who's the lady? Kristen Sinema. Thank you. The one who, uh, you know, thumbs oh. down infamously did the thumbs down last week um, and everybody rightfully despises now. Um, these kinds of Democrats who are basically like, I don't know why they're not Republicans. Um, but then again, if he says a lot about who Democrats are, but you know, it's like when Democrats are in power, that's what they use. So like when someone like Trump is in power, it's, oh, we can't do anything because the Republicans are in charge. But when they finally have power, the way they get out of actually following through on all their really empty platitudes about how they want to help the working class and middle-class Americans, the way they get out of doing that is with people like Joe Manchin. Like they need him. I could yeah. totally see like a backroom deal where it's just like you use people like Joe Manchin to just repeatedly obstruct anything that will actually help the majority of people, but maybe isn't to the benefit of the corporate donors of the Democratic Party. Right. You're talking about controlled opposition. And yeah. when you talk about being conspiratorial, I've even gone as far into my head to think of the progressive people as part of controlled opposition. And when I mm -hmm. say that, I mean, like when when I felt in the 20 election that Bernie really didn't fight and he stepped aside a lot easier you know, after clearly being cheated in, in the primaries, that's when my mind starts going there where I'm like, maybe it's all just controlled opposition. Maybe none of that, maybe that's the bone that they threw us to say, oh, look, we can be progressive. We can have a progressive side to us too, but yet rein us in. I mean, so I don't know that it's that conspiratorial. I think it's just all strategy and ultimately all roads funnel to the same corporations. And that's really what it is. The Democrat-Republican thing is a facade. That's not a real distinction. The distinction is whether somebody is corporate or non-corporate. Um, and that's where you see it in terms of how legislators vote. You don't, it, it's based on their corporate affiliation. Well, yeah, and I think the, the thing that uh, I took away from the 2016 election, which is probably going to forever be true, is that the... Um, the, the, it looks like there's a difference between how the Republican Party and the Democratic Party responds, because the thing that the base of the Republican Party wants doesn't threaten capital. Like there's nothing that the base of that party is demanding ideologically of their representatives that is going to fundamentally, you know, hurt the wealth and the 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 ability of right. people who are those, let's say, very broadly right wing oligarchs who want to maintain their control. But on the other hand, the things that we do demand, while they, you know, I, I think you could go to people on the left who are steeped in their ideology, they would question whether we go far enough, but nobody would debate that there are things that are demanded that threaten the power and hold of those who are, you know, just who, who are elites. Um, things that Bernie Sanders proposes we know that those policies that were were popularized are things that that, that threatened them because of how viciously they uh, tried to and succeeded in stunting his campaigns and um, so that's just to say that it, it doesn't it, there's not really much of a difference it just looks like there's a difference it looks like one party responds to their base while the other one doesn't and tries to suppress right. it but but when it's 
when it when everything is done, when you get to that final phase of any electoral uh, contest presidentially, also to some degree on the on the congressional and Senate levels, the idea is just to funnel everyone into that final nominee who is going to represent that corporate class interest, right? Yeah, I and this this is a really important factor that that we talk about all the time when we talk in regards to any success of a potential third party um, coming in is that we really need to unify the working class populism on the left and the right together. And when I when I this is one of the things I I think is an issue with a party like the Green Party is that it it's very it seems niche based. It's got that kind of hippy dippy environmental feel to it. And so a lot of the people that are populist working class people on the right wouldn't necessarily participate in that and as a result they're not going to ever get enough power behind them. And what we really need is a working class labor party that would encompass conservatives and um, ideological liberals, um, but really be focusing on working class issues. And what the corporations and the media successfully does is keep us separated on those red flag ideological issues that we're constantly fighting about that we think separates us into liberals and conservatives, mm -hmm. when in reality, it just disperses the working class. And so what we really need to do is we need to reach out to a lot of those people, unfortunately, and this is something that Dems do really well, is they so vilify those people so that if you dare reach across to talk to them, you're a racist, you're a misogynist, you're a Trumper, you're a whatever it is. But yet, unless we can consolidate the power between the people on the right that are the populists and the people on the left, we're going to keep spinning in circles. You know, I think that's a fantastic point because I also think there's a double standard there, right? Because it's like, what do we think when we think of conservative and liberal is what used to be conservative and liberal was all tied up with economics. But yep. over the last few decades, both parties have done a fantastic job of really turning these ideologies into something that's based on identity and culture war. Um, mm -hmm. So suddenly like abortion becomes the issue. Like it's like, you know, there's a bunch of class issues tied up with abortion and in family planning, of course, but just the religious aspect of it, right, becomes an issue that separates people that otherwise actually might be on the same side in terms of their their area, you know, their position on the class hierarchy and might have common interests. I mean, and then the issue of, you know, of course, race has always been used. Uh, racism has always been used to split uh, class solidarity, like from the founding of America. And that continues to be the case. Um, but what's interesting about when you say how there's this like uh, pushback from Democrats of don't talk to those people is that they're willing to talk to those people when it comes to Republicans who hate the poor. Like they're willing to talk to those people when it comes to Republicans who want to destroy entire countries. They're perfectly willing to hold hands with those people to do those things. But when you start talking to those people, the wrong people, about raising the minimum wage, something that'll actually benefit so many people on both sides of the political spectrum and is popular on both sides of the political spectrum, or something like universal health care that is popular across the country. Um, when you start wanting to talk about to the other side about those things, then it becomes a problem. Then you're getting in bed with racists. But it's totally fine to hold Tom Cotton's hand and support sanctions on Iran, right? Like right. it's such a double standard. 
They don't right. even apply like, their own rules to themselves. No, <laughs> they're being bipartisan. They call that, right. that's bipartisan. We have bipartisan support for this, um, which as if the word bipartisan is automatically a positive thing. No, it's only a positive thing if you're doing something positive. If you bipartisan support something that's not positive, it's not a positive thing. And I generally, how I've always approached this and how we've approached this with our campaign is I really take things on a per issue basis and build coalitions accordingly. Um, I have found that in my district in particular, for example, our Republican clubs are equally as concerned with restoration of our Everglades as the Democrats are. But the Democratic clubs would never have known that because they wouldn't even affiliate with the Republican mm -hmm. club. So to me, when I have an issue, like we want to be anti, um, we were having an issue with a company wanting to drill, oil drill and frack um, pretty close to here in the Everglades. Uh, I'm going to unite with every single person who's on my same team on that issue. Now, they and I might not agree on abortion or whether or not trans people can use public bathrooms. And we could argue about that at another time. But we definitely agree that we need to not be drilling in the Everglades. So why would we not want to have a majority dealing with that issue? And it's the same thing for any of these things, whether it's minimum wage or healthcare. And we just, I feel like it is almost my job to constantly be redirecting people to the issues and the policies and stop talking about the culture war and the nonsense. But until we have a group that is willing to make this be about labor and working mm -hmm. people, and prioritize that as the need for a political revolution, as opposed to culture issues, we're, we're not going to get anywhere like that. And that's, that's what I keep trying to, to make people understand. Um, we can, we can fight about the abortion thing till we're blue in the face. That's not going to change conditions for working people. So are you enjoying listening to this show? You should be. And if you are, you'll want access to our premium content, which you can find at Rockfin. Kevin, tell them about Rockfin. Yes, uh, we're up on rockfin.com. You can find us there at this URL, rockfin.com slash unauthorized dis. And uh, this channel is where we're going to get away from the demonetization that is happening on YouTube. Uh, we think it's going to allow us to grow our show and bring in new subscribers like you, people who are coming to this show for the first time, or maybe you haven't become subscribers yet and you were looking for an opportunity. And here, if you come and subscribe to our show at Rockfin, you won't just get access to us. You'll get access to other people who are making shows in the same space politically as us. People like Lee Camp, Graham Elwood, Jackson Hinkle, Richard Medhurst, Ron Placone, as well as Jimmy Dore. And uh, some of these people have been guests on Unauthorized Disclosure. So join us on Rockfin, subscribe, get access to our premium content, and you can hear all those other cool people too. All right. Well, so I put together a little something for our conversation. I don't know if you'll um, let me play this video, but uh, it's it's kind of a game. Um, you'll have to play along with me. But I, I, I grabbed some tweets from some of these people who are part of the brunch 
that okay. has been ongoing. The, the back to brunch brigade. The back to yeah, brunch yeah. Brigade. Oh, so, God. so <clears throat> all right. So I think we'll have Jen uh, read first. I have to put this on the screen, and then uh, all, all all I need you to do is just uh, when this shows. Okay, so I have to get this to. Ooh, mimosas in the Oval Office. I love the title. <laughs> All right. So we've never done this on our show before, but I just, uh, I'm, I, I thought something to break up this conversation that needs to be had, but might be kind of fun. So um, when, the, when the tweet appears, uh, Jen, if you would mind starting, uh, go ahead and just read the tweet. Okay. And then, and then when you get to the end, we'll see what happens. And okay. then, and then I have Rania, no idea what's happening right now. And then Rania, you read the you read the second tweet, and okay. we'll and we'll and we'll alternate until the end of the video. And, okay. Uh, I promise you that. So people Jen, are gonna, me, you, like we're me. gonna go yeah, in yeah. that order. Yeah. Okay. And we'll, and we'll we'll alternate, and um, and then then this is just our uh, informally we'll say this is our weekly check in with the the people at brunch, um, <laughs> over the past week. Yes. Uh, all right. All right, so go ahead. That's a great segment. It was so cool to watch a presidential speech without a knot in your stomach and a throbbing headache. Hey, you have even taken a nap, missed it, and not had to worry about something awful happened. Oh, no. Should we say who it is we're reading or no? Did you want me to say who it was? Oh, that was Jen uh, Rubin. Yeah, someone we 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 dearly love on this show. <laughs> We're huge fans. Now go around. So, one thing that I hate about this hyper online era is that we're so aware of every twist and turn and minor setback in a big legislative fight that when a major bill passes that will drastically improve the lives of billions of Americans, we can't just smile <laughs> and enjoy it. That's Ian Milheiser. <laughs> I like these. Are they like these in between West Wing? <laughs> For those who can't, for those who are listening on audio, he's immortal, Rob Lowe. <laughs> All right. What was so striking? This comes from John Heileman on MSNBC. Was that today? Uh, on today was the site of the Clintons and the Bushes and the Obamas, the Avengers, oh. Marvel superheroes, back up there together, all in one place. Someone shoot me. Can someone shoot me right now? Oh what? Did the, when, did the Marvel Avengers move into a $14 million estate in Martha's Vineyard? <laughs> All right, Jen, read this one. one. Okay. One of the simple, enduring images of the day, Kamala Harris's oh hair blowing in the wind as she took the oath. No one with longer hair, in other words, a woman, has ever taken the oath of office outside at the Capitol before because she's the first woman to ever do it. <laughs> what a loser. <laughs> that was the Atlantic guy who smeared Bernie Sanders during the campaign. Oh, and like, David Sirota. Something, yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, Ronnie. Not a word tonight about UV rays or injecting disinfectant. <laughs> These are like the cringiest. Today is the day. Today is the day Biden continued to be president. That was also oh. yesterday and tomorrow. <laughs> what the fuck? And then Jen, read this one. Oh, this is actually very fitting for me. Am I high, or was that Biden's speech? Oh, wait, I missed it. 
All right. Am I high or was that Biden speech every damn thing we needed right now? <laughs> Who's oh, we? High. Who's we? I think you were high, dude. Who the I who's we? <laughs> Jesus, man, that's like, the, like we all need different things, I suppose. It's the cringiest right. liberal takes. Like, seriously, if that if these people are like the liberal elites of the country, who the hell would want to be a liberal? When that's the attitude that's projected from them, which is this like arrogant, self-obsessed, like the happiness that they have just because Trump isn't like traumatizing them with his words anymore. Because these well, people, by the way, those people, none of them ever suffered under Trump. Not one of them suffered under Trump. They all still had money. They all still had houses. And they acted like they were Trump's biggest victims, which was even more pathetic. Like I just think it's so amusing to me. I, I These people just really are so unbelievably out of touch with reality. And then people wonder how the working class is shifting to the right. This mm -hmm. is why, like the amount of working people that cannot, I call it the overwoke culture. When th these people are not having it. I mean, they're not, when you start talking like that, they're going to just go against you to go against you. Again, this is the whole point. This is impeding progress. Yeah. And then also, it seems what gets, well, I was no, going to say, ahead. it seems what get, it seems what gets popularized when people are mocking and making fun of it is the, the, that right-wing sensibility, you know, that, that like, like, like what we see, unfortunately popularized is whatever comes from like, let's say Tucker Carlson or, mm -hmm. um, or, or, or what, or, you know, um, it gets filtered, I think inappropriately through a right-wing lens or a right-wing frame, but like when Joe Rogan will laugh at it. You know, and like, and it automatically gets treated as, oh, it's this big, beefy, meathead, buff guy. And so he can't, he has, he, it's an anti-intellectual mockery of the political class. When in fact, it actually just represents what we all feel, which is that this isn't in touch with any reality. Yeah. And I feel like also, um, not only is it the out of touch, it is like, it, it actually kind of reinforces the right-wing narrative, even though the right is all elites too, their narrative about liberals is that liberals are out of touch elites. The liberal narrative about the right-wing isn't that they're out of touch elites, it's that they're all racist or whatever. But the, the right-wing narrative I feel against liberals is more powerful because liberals are out of touch urban elites in New York and LA and Washington, um, yeah. where they like are completely disconnected from anybody outside their bubble. Uh, they don't know poor people. They don't know working class people. Their kids all go to private schools. They're all obsessed with, you know, um, forming like they, they have like even their own language that like if you're not educated in it, you can't even like be a part of their club. Like they literally yeah. it's just they all went to the same colleges and, you know, know the same people. Um, and they think that they're better than everybody else because they think they're not racist. That's literally what it comes down to. They think I'm not, we're not racist and we don't hate women. So we're yeah. better than everybody else. And that's the sentiment that they project and you can see it. They do have like, they have really the same kind of disregard for lower classes that the right does, but they're dishonest about it. Yeah, well, I mean, look, originally we, the Democrats were supposed to be the Labor Party, you know, that was mm -hmm. supposed to be our Labor Party. And, you know, really the turning point started with Reagan 
um, and the air traffic control workers. And there's been this long line that has been completely disenfranchising labor and unions. And the corporations have stepped up to fill that void. And that's what we saw really with Clinton was that was basically when the unions were no longer really the backers of the party. And now it's just as corporate, but they still needed to maintain this sort of um, labor solidarity messaging. And there is this huge disconnect between what the policies that they push and what they're trying to project themselves to be. And more and more people, and specifically people that are more conservative, see right through it. And the elitism and that academic elitism and that whole thing is so disgusting to so many people that they are basically forced to go to the right because there's nowhere else for them to go. Mm -hmm. yeah. there's, there was an episode that happened in the last week that uh, I think we should raise with you since uh, you know you occupy this space space with us of <clears throat> following the insurgency among the Democratic Party uh, and and I think it was actually kind of dramatic to a lot of people so in Nevada the entire state Democratic Party it, its leadership and everything left and and as I understand it uh, you can flesh out some more of the details for us Jen but the they, they looted the accounts of the state party so that the funds were no longer available. And uh, there's another aspect of this that I'll leave out for the moment, but let's just talk about the, uh, the election itself, which people rightly pointed out that so many thought these party officials would just be coronated into these positions and they wouldn't have any legitimate opponents they needed to convince others to vote against. Yeah, this is something that we've been talking about here for a couple of years, because essentially what they were able to achieve in Nevada is what needs to happen um, in any place where the people are working to basically what we say, pull the party to the left. They This is basically now the new blueprint for what needs to happen in the state parties going forward. And it is a local thing that happens because when you become a precinct person, a committee person, you get involved in your local DEC, when you start to do that and start to work your way up to the state level, this didn't happen overnight. Like we're getting the news, oh, the, you know, last week this happened. This is something that they've been working towards for four years You know, infiltrating the party and really working their way up to do this. It's brilliant. It's something that other states definitely need to take notice of and other progressives that are trying to work within their state parties. But basically, the leadership who always claims, we need solidarity, we need to all get behind whoever the you know centrist is, we need to all support Joe, we need to come together as Democrats, they just now proved that that is a whole bunch of bull for them, that they are not about solidarity, they are about centrism and corporatism. Because if they were about coming together and, you know, blue no matter who, then why can't it be our shade of blue? Why does it only have to be your shade of blue? Um, so basically they took their money and went home. They took their toys and they went home. And I personally find it great. They can take their money and shove it. Um, we'll yeah. figure out our own sort of uh, financing and whatever. We don't want them or their filthy money. Right now, the state of Florida Democratic Party's two biggest sponsors are Walmart and Big Sugar. So if we were to be able to affect some sort of similar takeover and our leadership took their money and left, I would just say good riddance. 
Um, so that money, as far as I'm concerned, shouldn't be part of the democratic process anyway. So let them take that. Uh, I think that this is really, it's a very positive thing. I hope, I mean, we're definitely working that, that magic here trying to. Well, and I guess that leads to a, a question that I would have for you, which is if you think these red states, I don't know if we should put them in that category just because it, it, it can box them in as to what is possible. At least that's how Democrats tend to use that term as a way of restricting the possible. But uh, because Democrats have historically written off these states as places where they would not be able to win and, and, and defeat Republicans, it seems like their party structures in the states that are less, let's just say less or not Democratic Party controlled, are likely in disrepair or filled with people who aren't exactly the first string that you would want to staff your uh, your party organization if you were in California or, or New York. These are these are people who probably would never be in, uh, given the the keys to run their offices. Um, and so uh, I'm wondering what you have to say to that. But then I'll just uh, quickly add one more little thing here, which is um, the meltdown and reaction from this guy who you, you only know if you followed the primary really closely in 2016. Um, and well, as part of 2020s, uh, well, before the Nevada went to vote. Um, but the meltdown from John Ralston has just been um, special for the last week. And uh, I just wanted to throw that out there. He's responsible for promoting the lie that there were chairs thrown at the Nevada State Democratic Party's meeting um, uh, when, when they had the delegates meet and they, <clears throat> they, they tallied up the vote after and uh, and and so uh, he's just he basically feels like the 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 communists just took over Nevada. You know, it at Florida is definitely this is where I don't understand why people call it a swing state. It's not a swing state. It's a red state. We have sixty seven counties. All but six of them are red. Um, our our Democratic Party state infrastructure is incredibly weak because it only exists in six counties. So. When you when you're looking at that, and and it's funny because the people that are inside that Democratic bubble, and specifically in, I'm in Broward County, so you've got like Dade, Broward, Palm Beach, a few other miscellaneous blue counties, and that's it. And we live in this bubble. It's like we have delusions of grandeur about how you know powerful our party is. Our party, the new head of the Florida State Democratic Party, is actually a Republican. Um, and so, well, I mean, technically now he's a he's a Democrat, but this is someone who's been a Republican for his entire career. So, I mean, it's very true what you're saying. But for people like me, like what my goal is, yes, I understand that the goal of the party is to get as many Democrats elected as possible. But on a bigger level and on a um, broader purpose, it's to shift the narrative and push the narrative forward. And that is something that we don't find because of what you're saying, which is that the kind of people that lead democratic parties in red states are not really democratic people. So what, what we're dealing with is trying to take over a secondary Republican organization or Republican light organization. And so when I see what happened in Nevada, it, it makes me feel hopeful. And, you know, that, 
it's in our control to do that. Now, what power we would ultimately get from doing that, that's where I'm saying it's still a fairly weak infrastructure. If we were to take over the Florida Democratic Party, that's not saying much, right? Like, so, okay, we'd be in charge of that, but what does that actually mean? Um, and in Florida, not a whole lot, unfortunately. So I think we need to change the perspective of what is it that means? What is it we're trying to do? And for me, it's all about pushing policies <clears throat> and supporting working people. It's about pushing progress. It's about moving things in the right direction and being as loud as you can in doing so, whether or not you're able to win any more than six counties, which we're not here. The thing that's also striking that we haven't talked much about is, is the capture of labor that the Democratic Party does have. And I, I feel like in our wide ranging conversation about how everything has unfolded over the last year it's important to raise them because you know there's not uh if you look at the more powerful unions that have um decided to you know link their horses to the democratic party and and mm. make them be the end-all be-all to where they where they go as organizations and, and where this country goes ultimately uh they don't really protest they don't also make that many demands of Democrats beyond what, uh, you know, they don't even actually take up almost all of the demands that, let's say, progressives like AOC would put forward. They're, they're, they're usually pretty meek about what they ask of the party. And, you know, meanwhile, you have things happening that I don't believe anybody running these unions is endorsing or supporting. It's just kind of organically taking place, like in Alabama, where they're trying to unionize the Amazon, and like that's 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 vibrant and and real labor energy within the country. But these institutions that claim to represent labor haven't really had that energy for decades. Uh, it would seem. Yeah, I mean, like I said, this the the, the final nail really in the coffin was the air traffic controllers and and reagan when he shut them down that should have been the impetus for a general strike at that time and essentially because of the way that was handled that was a, like the neutering of labor and then what happened is then the democrats were no longer getting their money from that they start getting their money from corporations. So now our unions are so incredibly weakened in this country. I mean, Florida is a right to work state. So we essentially have zero labor power here. Um, and so we, we've neutered these unions to the point where they really don't have any power. And what you see is more of a political connection in union um, leadership with the Democratic Party. But that is a very different animal than the rank and file and what's in the best interest of actual labor. And that is something that has become a huge distinction that we, I don't know that it wasn't originally. I mean, there's always been a certain political hierarchy within unions, but there is a very big distinction that needs to be made between union leadership and union, the, the institutions and actual labor. And those are not always the same interests. And what I have seen happen since we've seen unions become so weak, what we've seen is, is that union leadership is much more politically affiliated and involved with what we what is the Democratic Party. But those interests are no longer what is best for those interests are no longer to serve the rank and file. So there has been this sort of separation um, within unions as to what their real purpose is and who they're really serving. 
So even I would say Democrats that are supposedly really pro-union, you need to almost take another look and go a little deeper and say, okay, but are they pro-labor? Because those are not always the same thing. And so I always say I am always pro-labor. I am not always pro-union. Oftentimes the unions are stepping away from what their cause is and what they're supposed to be doing and getting in line with our political theater. So that's, that's what I've noticed. I think that's a really good point. I think it goes back to the co-optation, right, of uh, unions, not just by the Democratic Party, but also by corporations. And it's kind of like how corporations also have taken over the Democratic Party. They just kind of run everything and the union bosses are kind of in bed with them. Yeah. Um, and so it's a really tough situation, right, because labor doesn't have any sort of collective organizing. And this is not by accident. It comes from decades and decades, like half a century, really. Yeah of the planned strategic destruction of organized laborers and the institutions that support them um, by capital. And I mean, that's at the end of the day, that's what it comes down to. And that's why things today feel so, um, feel so, I don't want to say the word hopeless, but it can, you can give you that feeling because there really isn't collective organizing taking place on a massive level that we need right now, there's more of this kind of isolation. And of course, COVID's made it worse, but there was already this kind of isolation and alienation Mm. because nobody has an organization they can turn to that has that collective mentality. It's like, you're on your own. That's what it feels like. And I think that goes to what, back to what you were saying earlier, which is why we need that political organizing uh, from some sort of party uh, group, whatever, that places at its center of uh, the issue of labor. Yeah, because the, the reality is, is that the powers that be have done a really brilliant job at dividing us. We know that. I mean, that's just the most common strategy of any sort of you know elite structure is to keep the peasants fighting amongst themselves. But um, I, I feel like if anything, like what I would love to see happen in my lifetime is we need a general strike. We need a general strike. We need a general strike, especially in states that are right to work states. That whole right to work concept needs to just get completely upended and turned upside down. I think that um, I wish we had yellow vests that came with our cars here because I think that would make this, you know, a little bit easier to really pursue. But this when the air traffic controllers got cut, cut at their knees. That is when every other single union needs to take to the streets on their behalf. And that would have been that point in time. And since then, it's just been so much more eroded. But yeah, this is something where people need to realize that we are all in this same boat. Unless you are one of the people that are in charge, you're not in that club, you know? And so we are all on the same team. And I just feel like that's my contribution is to constantly be promoting this, this idea and maybe that'll come from the People's Party. I, I don't know. I don't know what their strategy is in terms of who they're reaching out to. But in my mind, any successful new movement has got to be labor-based. Um, in fact, it, that's the only way I think it can happen that we'll get real change is when the labor unions all come together and then people that, whether or not they're unionized, stand with labor. That, that will be the single greatest pull of people together to make a movement for change. Um, so I, I really see this intersection between just generally the have-nots 
and the labor and the labor movement. They, those things need to come together. So I just have one more question for you, um, and this could probably fill an entire episode, but I'm just interested in a, in, in a little bit of your thoughts. Um, since, excuse me, since we have you and you're, you're, you're based in Florida, what do you think we should learn from what happened during the 2020 election where it seemed uh, they had allowed the Republicans to poison the election with a lot of rhetoric that was anti-socialist and was doing this kind of, 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 of baiting um, making Democratic politicians seem like they were aligned with figures that the, the Democrats are actually complicit in presenting as you know dictators of the world, um, even though what they do as far as government leaders is far, far more complex, um, definitely not any more dictator dictatorial than uh, Donald Trump, you know, for example. So, um, yeah. so but, but what do you think the, the, the takeaway should be of how um, the Republicans were able to, it seems, have some success and still are using this, it seems rather effectively, of, of baiting um, Democrats into running against socialism. Yeah. Um, it's, I don't know that it's as much of a Republican point as just a corporate point, because we get that very much, especially here in Florida, from centrist Democrats. Um, we get fear-mongering all the time. Remember, we have a very large Cuban and a very large Venezuelan population here. Oh, we know. And, yeah. And so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so fear fear-mongering about socialism slash and also communism, which a lot of people throw together, um, it's whenever I see that to me, it should just be sort of like the poster or the commercial for our education system in this country. And, and what that has degraded to is that people just use terms like social socialism and communism and fascism, and they have no idea what they're talking about. Um, but this is a talking point that we've been fighting for years and, and we're going to just have to continue fighting this talking point. I, I do the best that I can to educate people and undermine that narrative as much as I can undermine it. Um, and, and regardless of whether or not um, somebody agrees or disagrees with what's going on in Venezuela or whether or not you support Maduro, um, most people can at least get behind the, yeah, it's not really our business, right? Like really let's, th that's not our business. And most people don't want to be engaged in war. Most people are ignorant that we're even doing the sanctions that we're doing. Most people have no idea what we're doing. Um, but that talking point, that fear-based talking point, unfortunately is something we're stuck with. That is something that we are going to be stuck with that until essentially the older generation dies. Dies, yeah. And mm -hmm. that's part of what we call generational change. When we look even at a micro level here, and I look at like the young Cuban population versus the older Cuban population, it's a huge difference. We're seeing a much bigger increase in what I call blue Cubans um, than <clears throat> when I was growing up, there were no blue Cubans. That, that did not, that was not a thing. And so we are seeing the younger generation. It is much more of a generational thing than anything else uh, across cultures. And so we are seeing a shift. Uh, we are seeing, and a lot of that also has to do with where young people get their news and get their information. Um, young people are not sitting and watching CNN or MSNBC. And, and as such, there is an opportunity for us um, that represents progress and represents what's in the best interest of younger generation to get our information out. We actually can control 
a narrative in a way that we never had the control to do so when it was only mainstream media that we had. So that to me is where we see our strength is, is our ability to push our narrative because we're not going to really be able to get rid of theirs. We're not going to be able to block that narrative. So the only way to really, and I wouldn't want to, to be honest, I'm a pretty first amendment absolutist, but the best way to balance that information is with our information. And so that's, that's what we're trying to do. That's what my show's doing. That's what your show's doing. I mean, that's really what this is about. And I feel like if every day I get one more person to understand that this is all just talking points that are being sold to us to keep us in line, then that's, a, that's been a good day, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, so why don't you tell people where they can go to find your show and you know, feel free <laughs> to promote or, or plug anything you would like. And uh, that's, uh, that's how we'll wrap. Okay. So our show is called Generational Change with a J. Um, I did not come up with that. My campaign manager did. It does seem very self-important, but it did lend itself to a kitschy title. So we're Generational Change. We're available on um, Spotify, iTunes. We're on YouTube. We'd love people to subscribe on YouTube. We have a Patreon page. We're, we're, we're just building. We don't have enough subscribers yet where we could have our online merch store. So we're, we're, we're working our way to that. People can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at genfl23. Um, and we always have stuff going on. I have a local volunteer organization called GenCore. That's what I'm, I've got my, here comes the sun. Um, basically, our campaign kept our volunteer organization that was our canvassers. And we, we've always been a service-based campaign. So we just still have GenCore going. So we work, we do community garden, we do food distributions, we do beach cleanups, we do all sorts of stuff. We encourage everyone to go to generationalchange.com. You can sign up to be a part of GenCore if you're local. Um, if you're not local, we also love people to get involved because like right now we are directing people to be phone banking for candidates. We've got one people phone banking for Nina Turner. We want people phone banking for Lee Carter in Virginia. So, you know, whenever we promote a candidate, we also want to link people so that they can help them as well. And, um, we are all about transforming politics into service. Sounds good. I have a little oh. announcement. Can I follow up? Yes. Because I just realized I haven't said it on the show yet. Um, <laughs> it's more of a personal announcement, but I'm leaving Soapbox. Rania is no so longer what? at Soapbox. I will announce next week where I'm going. Um, it's not really like something I want to publicize quite yet. Um, it's totally like on a positive note that I'm leaving Soapbox. It's not like something really dramatic and awful happened. Right. Uh, I just want to get back to doing this sort of journalism that um, I used to do, which I haven't been able to do in a long time. Um, and so I'm really, I'm really, really looking forward to it. Um, and so I just want to let you're coming on next week. You're coming on next week on my, on my telethon live stream and you can talk about that. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, that's our ads accurate. Yeah. And I can tell, so, and then yeah. you can introduce me as where I'll be by then I'll definitely, it'll be like a public thing See? and I'll be really, I'm really excited about where I'm going and I'm really excited about all the work I have planned. So that's awesome. Yeah. I, I just I'm wanted joining, to announce joining that. as well. What? Are you coming? You're coming on our live stream too? I'm joining as well. I'm going to be I'm on so after excited. you, Rania. Oh, oh awesome. Yeah. yeah. So That'll for anybody, 
I'm yeah, doing, yeah, it's a good uh, opportunity to announce that. <laughs> I'm doing a huge uh, telethon live stream on the 20th for Pardoning Assange. It's from 2 to 6 Eastern time. We specifically did that so that friends across the pond um, won't have to be up in the middle of the night and our people in California don't have to be up at the crack of dawn. So it's 2 to 6 Eastern time. And we have a variety of people. I've got one panel where we've got John Kiriakou and Medea Benjamin. We have Chris Hedges coming on. Um, it's it's going to be really cool and really Really, our goal is we want to flood. We are going to flood the Department of Justice with calls and emails and letters telling them that they need to drop this case against Assange. Yep. And this is really important. I just I'll just take uh, 20 seconds here to just quickly put the exclamation point on your announcement because people need to know whatever you think of Merrick Garland as Attorney General, whatever clips you've seen of him, and however he makes you feel, just know that the Justice Department has only supported the Assange prosecution in their transition. Like in the transition, the deadline to file the appeal came and they had yet to confirm Attorney General Merrick Garland. So even Julian yeah. Assange's partner, even his partner, Stella Morris, doesn't fault the DOJ for continuing the appeal. What she does say is that now Merrick Garland is Attorney General. It's his yeah. responsibility to drop the charges. So this is where it begins. This is now when Joe Biden owns this prosecution and it's up to us to get him to back down. Yeah, this has been something that I've been stressing about for like, it seems like 10 years now. Um, <laughs> yeah, it the, has the, been that long. Yeah, but. the gravity of this situation, I repeat it constantly. I, I, I cannot reiterate it enough to people that the prosecution of Julian Assange is the end of our first amendment. I can't be more, and I'm not being hyperbolic. I, I, I don't think people understand the gravity of this. So um, this is a massive thing for me. I'm very happy to be doing this. Katie Halper is going to co-host with me, which is fun. I, I thought, especially in, in terms of being able to take a bathroom break, um, it would be nice to have another person sitting there. I mean, four hours for me is pushing it. Um, so, <laughs> so yeah, one hour you know, for me. I like. Yeah, I mean, I just I got I get antsy. But um, yeah. so I'm really excited about it. And I'm, I'm just I'm very hopeful that we can make a dent. I, I don't know. Sometimes I'm almost jumping out of my skin about the Assange issue where I just don't even know what I'm supposed to do with myself. Like I, I don't even know what to do. So this is what I'm doing. And so um, next week, we're going to have a nice long telethon. And I want to be clear that we're not just going to be talking about this. Um, the function of it is to encourage people to call, but it, like anything, we, we can talk about other things. It's just a matter of keeping people interested in promoting the idea. I don't want people to think we're talking about Julian Assange for four hours. <laughs> uh, well, from my experience, there are a range of issues that you can cover. Yeah. Uh, Related yeah, to that, under tangential to the, just, yeah. just, uh, yeah. Within this frame, it just opens up so much. So yeah. um, I don't... I don't feel like we're just going to be giving, you're not going to just be giving his biography over no. and over again for the, for the next, uh, you know, for, for four hours. So, um, all right. And, uh, just, just a little, um, uh, uh, polite jab to Rania. How, how do you, um, how do you plan to help your op opponents cope with the fact that they won't be able to link you to Russia so easily anymore? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good question. It did cross my mind. That must have been a very upsetting thing for them because I did tweet. Are you, you are you offering are you therapy? Are you gonna? Are you gonna? Offer well, I like to think that my that me being a like an, a Kremlin agent goes with me forever. Like you never oh, okay. stop being a Kremlin agent. It's just That's like a true. part of who you are, right? Like I'm an Assadist forever. Like I can tweet about uh, my favorite. Even, flavor, if, you, even like, if you stop working water. for them, you're 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 still somehow working for them. 
It'll always, always be one of, you're always going to be a Russian agent. Always. It's just who I, it's just who I am, you know, as not like, apologist. My parents wanted me to be, when I was born, they were like our little Lebanese American child, Rania. We hope one day she'll be a Russian agent and their dream came true. <laughs> and here I, here I am today. Um, but no, it'll be, it'll be interesting to, to see how the Atlantic council responds. They'll probably just forget about me. Um, oh, that's a little sad. I don't think they'll well, forget about you. Hope, no, I you're still not. very relevant. I put in, I put in that I put in the work, you guys. I put in the work. <laughs> Anyways, I am, but honestly, I really, I'm like so thrilled about where I am going, and I can't wait to like shout it. So that's exciting. That'll happen soon. But I guess I will, and uh, I'm really excited also to come on next week and to be a part of that. It's such an important issue, um, and uh, I like, I, I applaud you because it would be really easy to just pretend Assange doesn't exist like a lot of people on the left do. Yeah. Um, well, I'll take crap for it and I'm sure I will. And I have before and I don't really care. Um, I already have what I consider to be probably a fairly thick FBI file that goes back to the <laughs> early nineties when I sent a very threatening letter to a sitting Senator. Um, <laughs> also studied under a known Marxist in college who was already considered subversive. So I, I, I figure, you know, whatever it just, you know, <laughs> caution of the wind. You're embracing it. Hi, whatever. All right. So, uh, let's sign off. Uh, thank you everyone for watching and listening to the unauthorized disclosure weekly podcast. I'll go ahead and just take a moment to do some, uh, uh some plugging, if you want to listen to our show, you can find us on Apple, Spotify, you know, all the platforms. And also, uh, we still have our Patreon page. But what we're pushing now is to get subscribers over at our Rockfin, which is rokfin.com slash unauth-disclosure. Um, and if you go there, um, not only will you get access to our content, but there's other people who are posting content there as well. Um, so thank you very much. We'll be back next week with another show.